to Revelation chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider was death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a quarter of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they were themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. 
After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the, the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven, for about half an hour. Uh, Alison, Rachel, thanks so much for reading um, the passage so well for us. The issue of identity, well, it's a really crucial one. See, because our identity, well, it drives the outcomes. The, the author of the international bestseller, Atomic Habits, James Clear, well, he makes this point. He says there are, there are three layers to, to all individuals. You have the core, which is your identity. And on the second layer, you have your processes. And on the third, you have outcomes. And so the root of behavioral change, well, it starts with the core, your identity. And if you want to change the outcomes on the third layer, well, you must start by changing your identity. And so that raises an important question. Um, who are we? What is our true identity? For us at Covent Garden Talks, how might you describe who we are? And I wonder what you said in your breakout groups. Perhaps you might have called us an interest group, some like exercising, some like cooking, some like gardening, and some like talks from the Bible. And it's a bit like TED Talks, obviously with the same finesse and quality, well, I mean, perhaps there's some truth in that. Now, every week when you come on Thursday, we do engage in information exchange and hopefully it's, it's somewhat interesting. But let me ask, is that all? Or alternatively, you might have described this as a community group, a community of Christians with real relationships and genuine care for one another. And again, I, I hope that's, that's true to some extent. We are a community. And for those who've been coming for a while, I hope you do think we, we do have genuine relationships with one another, that there's genuine care. But let me ask again, is that 
all. Or perhaps uh, we might be your midweek Christian obligation. Maybe your pastor or your vicar has told you to join this lunchtime talk. Or perhaps you feel bad about not doing something Christian in the middle of your week. I don't want to say it's great that you're coming. I hope as well that's not, that's not all. So how might you describe Covent Garden Talks? Um, who are we? Who are we really? And the, different of, the difference in our com- considerations today is not so much what James and his book says about how we can change our identity, but rather we are concerned about heaven's perspective of our true identity. Um, over the past couple of weeks, I've been describing the book of Revelation a bit like providing heaven's glasses, a pair of glasses and lenses that you can see the world for what it truly is. And as we put on the glasses today, we are going to see who we truly are. I mentioned as well before, Revelation is written to the seven churches, churches in the first century, seven churches who were struggling with a variety of different concerns. We had a compromising church, a comfortable church, and a persecuted church. What is their true identity? And for us as well, what is our true identity? Uh, Who are we? Uh, Let's put on heaven's glasses and let's see what God has to say to us today. Last week, if you were here, uh, you would have remembered the scroll that we were introduced to, this scroll. And I suggested last week that the scroll that we were introduced in chapter 5 um, according to Daniel chapter 7, it signifies the, the end of time. Uh, the words were meant to be sealed up to the end of time. And when the scroll is being opened, that is the end of the world. And John, he, he weeps because in chapter 5, it seems that no one can open the scroll. But finally, he hears someone speaking. I weep no more. He hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah can open the scroll. And when John, when he turns to see, what does he see? Look at verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. He saw a lamb uh, as though slain. And who's that? Uh, Well, it's Jesus, both the lion and the lamb. It is him who is worthy to open the scroll. This week, uh, we have the scroll with seven seals held by the lamb. And one by one, the seals are opened. And in our passage today, the world, well, it starts to unravel. At the temple in the passage, it quickens. The end is coming swiftly. If you're following the handout, we are on our first point. Uh, look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. He was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what it seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. 
when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, the white horse and the rider to conquer, country versus country, the east versus the west. The red horse and the rider, civil war, the northerners versus the southerners. The black horse and the rider, economic unrest, 25 pounds for a sausage, egg, my muffin. A pale horse and rider, a quarter of the earth killed, a global pandemic. And what is happening here is that the illusions of peace and prosper prosperity are shattered as the seals are open. Uh, but there's more going on in the passage. Uh, the pace quickens. I look to verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you were judged and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, the saints, those who are martyred, they cry out, How long? When is the end coming? Hurry up. And what they told? Look at verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed they themselves had been. A little longer, they were told. The end is coming. But before we can catch our breaths, uh, the sixth seal is broken and open. Again, look at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that has been rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Great cosmic events is being described, a great earthquake. How you look out, the sun that is shining has turned pitched black. The stars are falling like leaves from a tree. The sky is rolled up like a scroll. It's the end. And all the people cry out, from king to servant, from CEO to cleaner, call to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You see what's happening. The world is like a huge ball of flames hurtling to its final end. Um, how long the saints, they cry out? Well, the answer seems like it's now. But suddenly, all of a sudden, everything stops. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. See, the, the four corners of the earth signifies all of the earth, the whole earth, and four angels holding the destruction back from coming on the earth. Imagine with me, they are, their arms are stretched out 
holding hands from each corner of the earth, preventing more destruction to come. And if you're on the earth, you hear silence. But behind the angels, you hear a raging tempest about to destroy the earth. But what's happening? See, the, the end of the earth, the end of the world, well, it's put on hold. Uh, there's a pause that is going on. The destruction stops. Well, things, they settle down. And the question is why? Uh, we, we know that on the scroll, there were seven seals. Uh, we had the first six seals. Where's the seventh? Uh, why is there a pause? What is holding the end of the wall up? Well, before we, we deal with that question, I'm sure you guys are burning to think about when does Judah 6 see, when did it actually happen? Uh, let, me share, let me share my thoughts. Well, I used to think that this refers to a future day event, but I think there are clues in this passage to, to see that this was describing what was happening to them in the first century, albeit in an apocalyptic fashion. Remember, Revelation was written to the seven churches in the first century. And so Revelation is relevant. Uh, there are some obvious clues in the passage. Uh, in verse 2, we see a crown was given to this white rider. And it's a common act in the first century for a Roman leader to be given a laurel wreath. But more obviously in verse 6, uh, look at the price of wheat, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Um, and denarius there, that's the first century currency. And what is John doing here? And my suggestion is that he is describing their lives in the Roman Empire in a subversive way. His point is to, to unsettle complacent readers that on the surface, well, Rome, it looks, it exudes peace, prosperity, and progress. But John, he wants his readers to, to pause, uh, to, to flip through the news, to put the year to the ground, and to see that not everything is rosy. And in a sense, they, they are living in the last days. And I guess that's true for us too today in 21st century London. Um, on the surface, it can seem that we are living at the apex of humanity. But John, he, he wants us to, to pause, to, to consider well, a simple virus knocking the whole world out. The exposure of nation against nation and a, a big exposure of national greed. And so John, I think he's designed this to, to unsettle those who, who want to cuddle up with this world, uh, to show that in one sense, we are in the last days, we are one step from the end. John, I think he wants to unsettle us as readers. But the big question is this, if we are in the last days, uh, if we are in the gap between the sixth and the seventh seal, uh, why is this not the end? What is holding the end of the wall up? Why is there a pause? Well, if you are following the handout, we are on our second point. So that end, well, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I look at chapter seven, verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with a seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God 
on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. But why is there a pause? Well, it's to seal the 144,000. And obviously the next question to ask is, who are the 144,000? Um, there are different views that are being thrown around. Some people think that, yeah, that they are actual ethnic Jews from the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses would say that these are the exact number of the true followers of Jesus. Well, obviously, as time ticks on, as the community grows, that becomes a problem. Well, Mormons, they believe that this 144,000, they are referring to a special group of high priestly individuals. Um, who are these 144,000? Uh, my suggestion is that John, he helps us to interpret who they are. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 5, uh, remember what happened to John? He, he heard a voice saying, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. But what happens when John turns to see, look at chapter 5, verse 6, and he turns to see he saw a lamb as though slain. And so the, the lion and the lamb that there are two aspects of the same person, namely Jesus. And John, in chapter 7, verse 4, he employs the same technique as well. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. And John, he heard the number of the seal, 144,000 from Israel. But when John turns to see, who does he see? Look at verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John, he sees a great multitude of Christians, uh, people who are worshipping the Lamb. And so I think he uses the number 144,000 to indicate the full number of Christians. A 12 times 12, 12 signifying the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 signifying the Gentiles. Times 10, times 10, times 10, describing a great multitude. 144,000 describing all Christians. But again, the, the elephant in the room is, is why does John list each 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. When Rachel was reading the passage out, you might have felt it was slightly um, onerous that she kept going on and on and on. Uh, why single out each tribe? And I think in this case, the Old Testament helps. Um, I put down a reference there in the handout, if you can see, and the reference there is from Numbers uh, chapter 1. And this concept of listing numbers from tribes has a precedent in the Old Testament. Let me, let me read to you from Numbers chapter 1, verse 2. And this is what God says to Moses. Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by father's house, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them, company by company. See, John, he, he singles out each tribe because well, he's enlisting an army. See, the troops are being gathered and assembled. Now, this is 
an army. And this is why the end of the world is being held up, because the troops are being prepared for war. The army is being assembled. And so as we, we put on heaven's glasses and we ask ourselves, who are we? From heaven's perspective, in one sense, we are an army. We are an army. Before you start to worry, uh, let me clarify. Uh, I am not campaigning for Christian gun rights. I'm not promoting for the use of jihad. There is no spilling of enemies' blood. Uh, look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Do you notice? There's no spilling of enemy's blood. It is the Lamb's blood that is being spilled. And how the battle is being fought? Well, it's not, it's not very clear. Now, you might have noticed um, the first scene that we got there uh, was from verse 4 to 8. There was the assembling of the troops as, as John lists out the different tribes. But scene 2, the actual battle itself, well, it's not being described. The next scene we get in verse 9 is a victory scene. Um, the, the great multitude, they are standing before the land. They are waving palm branches, a symbol of victory. See, the victory is certain in this war, but there's a missing scene in the middle. And how does the army fight? Well, if you want to find out, uh, you have to keep coming back in subsequent weeks. But the point to see for today is that this is not your usual army. There are no swords, no guns, no spilling of enemy's blood. See, the medieval church, they, they got it wrong. Uh, Christian terrorism, they've gotten it wrong. But that being said, uh, John is intentional about portraying us as an army, troops preparing for battle. So what does it mean for us? Well, I started by suggesting that our identity, well, it drives our actions. So what does it mean that if uh, John thinks that we are an army? Now, let me read to you a quote from uh, one of John Piper's a really excellent book. I do commend this to you. The title is Let the Nations Be Glad. I personally, I think it's one of his best books. And this is what he says. Christian life is conscripted for the war. There's not a warfare part of life and a non-warfare part of life. Life is war. But most people do not believe this in their hearts. Most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe we are in peacetime, not wartime. In wartime, newspaper carries headlines about how troops are doing. In wartime, families talk about the sons and daughters on the front lines and write to them and pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, we are on the alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. In wartime, we spend money differently. There is austerity, not for his own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on new tires at home. The war effort touches everybody. We all cut back. The luxury liner becomes a troop carrier. You see what he's suggesting? 
Now, if we are an army, at the very least, that should shape the way we think. Uh, that should shape the way we think about money. Uh, money is no longer channeled from kitchen extensions or another whole day, but into necessities, into bread, water, arms, ammunition. The luxury liner becomes a troop carrier. The exhibition hall becomes a military hospital. But it also shapes the way we pray and why we pray. He goes on to say, probably the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops and gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit. He handed them each a personal transmitter to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access through him. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be close as to you to give tactical advice to send air cover when you need it. But what have millions of Christians done? We have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just peace and prosperity. And what do we do with the walkie-talkie? We try to rig it up as an intercom in our houses, cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict, but to ask for more comforts in the den. See, when we forget that we're in a war, well, our prayer well, becomes man-centered, becomes all about us. But if we remember that we are on active duty, we are constantly directing our prayers to the commanding officer. We are asking for help in our mission. So who are we? Well, if you put on heaven's glasses, it says that we are an army. And I think that's really helpful for us here at Covent Garden Talks. I mean, it helps to understand why we exist. I mean, there is some truth that we are an interest group. In a sense, we do exchange information. And we will find out that one of the ways the army fights is by, by witnessing to the truth. So truth and information is important. And in one sense, we are a community group. And we, in one sense, we are brothers and sisters in arms. But we cannot be your midweek Christian obligation group. You see, the army, it's it cannot, uh, an active stance. It's not passive. And the obligations is outside Covent Garden Talks. It's out there in the workplaces or in the neighborhood. And so ultimately, Covent Garden Talks is a training camp for war. And so there's a slight caution to us that we don't train for the sake of training. Uh, we're not here primarily for an intellectual stimulation. We're not here to polish your rifle, to hang up the wall, for people to see. We are here for war, uh, to make Jesus known to the people and the world. And so the battlefield is there uh, in the offices, with the people that you speak to on your Zoom calls, or I guess these days by the water cooler. Uh, people out there in the neighborhood, uh, people there who have not yet known the Lord Jesus. And so we must prepare our minds for war. 
Again, as we close, let me, let me just clarify, this is not a call to physical violence. Uh, we follow the lamb that was slain. Uh, he was killed and he was not the killer. And how we fight will be revealed in the subsequent passages. But for now, our identity must shape our actions. Now, who are we? You put on the glasses and you see we are an army. Now, why don't I pray for us? Then, I, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Father, we praise you for the blood of your son, the sacrifice that he has done. We praise you that in him, we have full forgiveness from sin. But we praise you as well that in him we have the model of what it means to be living in this world. We pray that we might recognize the, the times you were in, that we are not in a peacetime, but we are in a war for people, for you. And we do pray that you might help us in this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um.